Hi and welcome to the Homeopathy Health Show. I'm Atik Ahmadbati, a fourth generation homeopath with over 25 years of professional experience and practice in this field of healing. The Homeopathy Health Show is the online voice of homeopathy around the world, promoting and raising awareness of this truly unique system of healing, which is suitable for all ages, young and old. Every week I invite guests from the world of homeopathy to come and share their experiences, their work, offer insights and essentially talk all things homeopathy. Why not visit www.liketreatslike.co.uk and click on the radio and podcast button to listen to the latest episodes. So let's begin today's show here on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio. Hi and welcome to another episode of the Homeopathy Health Show here on UK Health Radio. And of course, I'm your host, Atik Ahmadbati. Now, I'm delighted to introduce my guest on today's show, who is Paula Webb. Now, Paula is a homeopath practicing in the UK and has been serving humanity through homeopathy at Helix Homeopathy since 2007. She also actually serves on the team at Homeopathy 247, and teaches the homeopathy diploma at the College of Naturopathic Medicine in London. And you will recall that the founder and principal of the College of Naturopathic Medicine, or CNM for short, my good friend, Herman Kepler, was on the podcast recently to talk all things homeopathy and, of course, the progress and success of the college itself. So without further ado, uh, Paula Webb, welcome to the Homeopathy Health Show here on UK Health Radio. Very nice to be here, Atik. Thanks for having me. It's a it's a delight, and we we've got so much to talk about. I can't wait. And uh, but we start right at the beginning because you have a really fascinating background. I personally find it very interesting, which is in the field of uh, broadcasting as well. I suppose you could say, and being a journalist for a national UK newspaper and a scriptwriter for BBC drama which is actually my excitement there. So let's let's get to that, you know. That's the talking point today. But uh, And you did that for, for quite a long time, about nine years or so. So how was how was that experience and what were you involved with as far as the, the, the BBC drama and the script writing and, and what's involved in that role? Because it must be quite, um, for want of a better word, hectic and challenging yes. and, and different and yes. demanding. And... Yes, all of those things. Um well, I started off after I left university where I'd studied English and done an awful lot of student drama, um, wanting to work in theatre. And I, I tried acting, which I was very bad at, I have to say, and then a bit of directing um, and then a bit of writing my own theatre, which went down slightly better. Um, and then I was offered a job as a theatre critic for Time Out, which is the start of it all. And I would be going to see two or three plays a week, which was wonderful. And eventually ended up in in television drama as a script editor um, while I was still writing more serious pieces for national newspapers, you know, Independent and Nation of the Guardian on, on the health matters or other things that I got under the collar about. But the the work in in BBC drama was very very hectic, and um, you know people people who can do it for more than a year are made of of strong stuff. 
was all I can say, because I was working on um, some of their mainstream shows where the turnover is is very high. And I went from being an editor to a writer where you would literally require to more or less write 2,000 words a day. Oh, my. Um, and they had to be good words. <laughs> <laughs> right. Challenging. Challenging, yes. But, I mean, it, it just is also a joy because I'd grown up. You know, my fascination has always been with words, not only the words that are said, but the words that aren't said, the words in between. Hmm. I think I grew up in a you know typically British household where no one no one ever actually said what they meant. So I was always trying to decode what was being said to me. They need um, a consultation. They, well, yes, they did. <laughs> sadly, sadly, um, my parents are now past. But um, but when I came to writing um, drama, so I um, whether you love it or hate it, I was writing EastEnders and Holby City shows like that. But um, it was a joy to be able to try and encapsulate someone's feeling or thought in in language that could hint or get deeper underneath the hood of what might look like on the surface a very bland conversation. So I was always interested in subtext, so there was I um, joy in that. But but um, it was. It was exceedingly hectic, and um, I decided it wasn't for me at, at some point. You know, I, I'm fascinated by actors and the, the script writing process because it's actually the script which brings the acting to life, right? Without that, there's that you, without a script, you can't just go in. Although there is one example, there's only one I know, which was... Um, Francis Ford Coppola was talking about Marlon Brando for The Godfather, mm -hmm. and he said it's a very interesting, fascinating story. And I and uh, but this is the homeopathy health show, everybody. We've just gone totally off tangent, uh, but it's an interesting story indeed. And he was saying that with Marlon, you couldn't give him a script, and you just told him about the character. And he said that he came in one day and he just put some oil in his hair and he combed it back or pushed it back. He didn't have much hair, as as you know. but yeah. And he put two pieces of tissue in his mouth so that he could look like the godfather, Don Corleone. Mm -hmm. And he said, and he said, he turned around to uh, Francis Coppola and he said, he, he's going to talk like that. Sorry, excuse me. I'm, I'm trying to, but it's not. But, you know, he talks like the godfather. And he said, this is how he's going to talk. And, um, and that was fascinating, you know. But in reality, of course, those are unique examples. But I just find that um, this the way that you write a script and how an actor then takes those words and puts emotions, I mean, that's such an amazing creative process because we all watch movies, of course, and we get so sometimes if it's a, if it's good acting, even if it's a drama on TV, of course, you can really get caught up and you can feel those emotions, can't you? You can. And, and going back to your point, and everyone says, oh, it's all about the script. You know, every writer will tell you without the script, you have nothing. And it is true. Mm. But I, as a theatre critic, saw many um, bad plays made good by a good performance and many great oh. plays made bad by a poor performance. It's it's very much a, a team event, so I would it's a, say. It's a two-way process. Yes. Yes, and because I knew who my actors were when I was writing these shows for the BBC, I already knew the capacity of those actors, so I would write accordingly for them. Um, but I was one of many writers. It's a bit of a, a bit of a factory, not a factory that that's disparaging, but it's a bit of a marathon. 
where you or a relay race where you write an episode and then hand on the baton to the next writer. So mm. that in all in all, there were about 40, 40 of us writing it. You'd write one episode and then hand it on to the next person, and then you'd do the next one two weeks on and so on. It's interesting because you know, I've seen I, I won't give the example, but it was a very it's a very well known drama and for a few years because one of the Rus uh, one of the oops because one of the, I was nearly going to say the name of the scriptwriter but because one of the uh, scriptwriters left for something else for pastures new the show went downhill because the script wasn't as it it wasn't following the same narrative I suppose you could say and then the writer came back and the show went up again so yes. it's it's amazing isn't it different creative skills and where somebody thinks they have to take the show and, and we're not perhaps yes it's a very it's it's very complex it's a bit like writing a, a symphony it has mm. peaks and troughs and stanzas and you have to get those beats right um in order for it to really gel and sometimes it really doesn't and sometimes it happens you know it's the first thing you write and it's magic what a great it's a, it's a very low a very lonely um thing being a writer you have to have a very rich internal world Hmm, of course. But something very good happened, something yes. very enlightening, which was homeopathy. So yes. do share, what was that, you know, 2007 onwards, you've been in practice, and what happened between you sort of uh, working at the BBC and going into practice? What was that trigger or that moment of inspiration or that experience? The experience actually was that my entire family got ill. Quite seriously, both my parents um, got cancer at the same time. Um, and then my sister got ill and I got ill. And I had a very close-up view of what was considered the best of allopathic treatment. Hmm. And I was particularly shocked how uh, medieval some of the treatments for my parents seemed. Um and I got very into. I just suddenly started going. Is there, you know, what vitamins aren't they having? What, 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 what? And I, I, I went through, you know, the rabbit tunnel into starting to come outside that allopathic framework and just going, yeah. is this the only option? And that curiosity uh, was cemented when I got ill myself, alongside my sister, probably from the stress of, you know, looking after my parents. Um, and someone said, go and see a homeopath. I didn't even know at that point what, it, what one of those was. I thought it was something to do with oil and hot stones and a massage. But I went because I trusted this person. And I saw the homeopath and I sat there and talked for two hours, cried a bit, laughed a bit, and left with two very small pills. Um, and I thought, oh, I just paid £60 for that. Surely this is this was very pleasant talking to the woman, but nothing's going to happen. And I went home and took the pills, and I had a an amazing transformation, not only in my physical health but my mental health. And I was really so overwhelmed by that that I thought I've got to go and find out more. Mm. Um, I'm quite, you know, scientifically like the proof, like to know what's going on. I'm not, not so much one for vibes and you know, what some people were called woo-woo approach. Um, so I went and did an evening class and 
yay, it worked when my child had food poisoning. And yay, I, you know, pulled the to stop someone's cold in its tracks. I couldn't believe what was I was seeing. Mm. Um, and then I thought, I've got to do this properly if I'm going to do it. Um, so I said goodbye to drama um, at the BBC. And I went to university and did a BSc in um, integrated health and homeopathy. So I got all my fears and anatomy and all of that, plus the homeopathy, and came out the other side. And that was 2007. You know, it's very, of course, it's um, it, it's very uh, emotional and, and, and sad to speak about parents. I've, of course, I've lost my parents also, you know, far too soon. And yeah. um yeah, you know, just just sort of going off on that, you know, you you always wish, don't you, sometimes that if they were around, there's so many things that you just want to share with them, because that's what parents yes. are for, aren't they? You know, you you share with them, and then they say, no, no, it'll be okay, don't worry, or they'll give you some magic advice, you know. Yeah. But uh, that's that's life, I suppose, and and that's the process we we go through. But I I also witnessed that, you know, the the suffering of of parents and. It can bring to light so many things, you know, which I suppose you can't even put into words, but certainly it brings life very much to the forefront and, and you know, the ways and the opportunities that exist and how you can perhaps deal with something, even in hindsight, you know, they say hindsight's a wonderful thing, but sometimes it can be emotionally challenging, of course, but it, it, there, there is that thing, isn't it, that it does transform you losing a loved one and eventually it does make you stronger because you learn so many things during that process of caring for somebody well yes i think you see i mean both my parents when they were dying actually went into a, a much more graceful and accepting and loving space hmm. um so i was very sad to lose them at the end um and their loss, obviously, loss of anyone you care about it doesn't have to be parents. It just makes you more appreciative of those that you have and of your own time left. You know, now, I, now I'm a parent. I've got two teenage boys, and I'm thinking I've got to stay alive for as long as possible. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I want to see their, I want to see their first children, and all of that. You know, these these mm. become my preoccupations now. Absolutely. Um, so. From there, we are now at 2007 onwards, and yes. you're practicing as a homeopath. So how was that experience initially? How did you find that? And, and where are you sort of today? Well, today is a very different place because, uh, well, it's, a, it's 20 years on. So mm. um, that's very different. I mean, I was, you know, bringing up the kids then. So the kids were very little. So I was only working part time and I was... Um, seeing people at home, and then I was working at a clinic. And um, while it was satisfying, I didn't really have any idea about marketing myself or any of that. And I think a lot of new homeopaths struggle with that. It's like, I've got this great gift, but uh, generally the public don't trust it or don't understand it or don't even know what it is. So you've got to get through that barrier mm. first before you know you get your first patient and they tell someone else and then tell someone else. Um so I carried on for a while, but I wasn't, even though I was, I'd done a very good degree in homeopathy, I wasn't quite satisfied with my results. So I was always slightly frustrated. I felt I should have a hundred percent success rate, you know. Um, so in the end, I 
went back and did the uh, diploma at the International Academy of Classical Homeopathy. I did the online, either not the online version, but the in-person version. And I was taught by a wonderful man called Andrew Ward. Um, and once I'd done that diploma, which was hard, uh, but thorough, uh, my uh, success rates went through the roof in terms of where I'd been before. So I knew I'd sort of, I'd done the right thing. And uh, then I met a, a very wonderful woman called Mary Greensmith, who runs something called Homeopathy 247. Well, it was just an idea at that stage, which was to make homeopathy available, cute consultations available around the world 24 hours a day, so that people like you and me who are practicing can actually go to sleep and not worry that their patients, if they get sick in the night, can't be treated. Um, and she basically taught me how to run a business. Hmm. Um, and I joined the, the first group of 247 homeopaths. And from that, uh, so I thank Mary, that really helped me set myself up properly. And from then I uh, specialized in an illness because I had success with it, and I, I wrote a blog about it because I was so shocked that I'd actually managed to help. It's a very complex illness called POTS, Postural Orthostatic Tachycardia Syndrome, hmm. um, which there is no real treatment for in in hospitals because they can only suppress the symptoms. It's a fainting illness, uh, or really, actually, it's a Disruption of the autonomic nervous system, if you want to get technical. It's like the electrics have gone in the car. Everything goes wrong. You know, body temperature, fainting, um, nausea. It's a terrible thing that happened to them, these people. And I had success with it, and I thought, I'll write a blog because I know how to write, and I've just done something interesting. And I, I wrote a blog and put it on my website, and within a week I'd had about 15 or more more than that. I'd had maybe 70, more than that, even emails from around the world saying, please help me. Wow. Um, I've tried all the drugs. I've tried the myodrine and uh, all the steroids and all the rest of it. Um, please, can you help? And that's how I started to specialize in this illness. And that's pretty much what I do most of the time is I see patients around the world with POTS from my desk via Zoom. Amazing. You know, you mentioned homeopathy 247, and Mary Greensmith has been on the show. Uh, oh, it's yes. in post-production. So has Dr. Anthony DePontes, who's out next week. Yes. And Yagoda has already been. Yes, has already fantastic. Been on the show. And so many more. I, I think uh, I've noticed that there's a, there's, a, there's a lot from homeopathy 247 who've actually been on the podcast now. Amazing, amazing platform. And uh, But I was going to ask you, you know, with the this diploma that you did, what because you mentioned that success went you know um through the roof i suppose yeah what was different about this uh this diploma itself with the iach iach is actually the international academy of classical homeopathy i think that it's a most people when they do homeopathy diploma or course are normally just taught um, about the totality approach, which comes from Kent historically. And there's a lot of focus on learning the materia medica. 
But as I've got older, I've realized that you know, we have the software now to help us hunt down the right mm. remedy. But if you don't take the case well enough, you will never get there. So um, what's so good about the um, IACH diploma is that it not only tells, teaches you very thoroughly about the totality approach, but it looks at all the other strategies and techniques that you will you need to use if you can't see a clear totality. And that is explained by Dr. Kutlis's amazing book, The Levels of Health, that the lower your level of health, the less clear the, the remedy picture will become. And you need special techniques. And somebody who comes in with a serious autoimmune or, um, excuse my phone there, um, serious autoimmune or MS or something, that they won't give off a clear remedy picture because their vital force is becoming less and less cohesive. Mm. So sometimes you could look at a very ill person and it's like looking at into a bowl of soup and you can't actually tell what flavor it is. Is that is that or is that or is that a bryonia soup or a pulsatilla soup? And uh you talk very thoroughly that you know, there are five techniques that you can use and strategies on top of those which can help you find those difficult cases that the simulum and also to see the cases in layers and, and how to find the top layer. That plus a thorough understanding of the implications of the level of health and what you will see when each level of health is different. There are 12 roughly, not only how they will present symptoms differently, but how they will react to the same remedy as the next person differently depending on their level of health. These these things together are, I've found to be, you know, if you follow those, you, you don't often go very wrong. Fascinating. And of course, uh, a lot of experience we know by Professor Vitorkas himself. He's, an, um, he's a genius. Mm. He's an amazing man. He's dedicated his entire life to the service of homeopathy. He's a wonderful man. It's been a privilege to have worked with him and, and studied under him and seen him lecture. He's, he's, he's amazing and so humble and funny. Oh, okay. Interesting. Well, hopefully one day, I do look forward to him coming on the show, I if hope possible. So too. It's such an interesting journey you've had. You know, if we just look back now at what we've just discussed, where you started off script writing for the BBC, uh, journalism generally, and then, of course, uh, you know, an, a period of certain emotional distress and upset, and from there sprang this light of homeopathy. And you know, today you are an amazing homeopath who's helping so many people around the world and you're specializing in pots and it's it's wonderful isn't it when you when you think back at uh, at that journey and uh, it's how what life has in store for you no one really knows you know it just happens sometimes doesn't it a, a lot of the things that have you know have put me in this place now were very uncomfortable mm. you know there was a lot of sadness um my own health issues at the time and um, um, financial struggles. You know, I gave up an incredibly well-paid job um, for the BBC to go and sit in a room with, um, you know, mostly ill people, and and you know, I had to make that adjustment. It's like, no, my I am driven to do this. This is my calling. So, mm. um, and I was surprised that that's where I, I would end up. I'd always had an interest in health and psychology, um, and 
having tried all those other things, when I arrived at homeopathy, this was the perfect blend because, as we know, homeopathy is so respectful of the link between the mind and the body. It was a perfect, perfect medicine for me. Um, and suffering, we're, we're all going to suffer. You know, you can't escape it. And I think as I get older, I just go, okay, this is, a, this is another way of coming. We're going to have to ride it and something amazing may come out of it. You just have to take that approach. It also brings to light the, the power and efficacy of homeopathy itself as a healing modality because the myriad of mental health and emotional complaints that many of us go through, especially in modern times, because of a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, that two, over 200 years ago, there, was, there were remedies that were proven that have such a strong affinity for the conditions that we are physically facing now. They've always had it, but I mean, because mental health is so openly spoken about now in recent times, yeah. 200 years ago, the essence of those remedies, you know, the characteristics, the mental, emotional, physical, and and it's and this is not just plant-based remedies. You're talking plant, animal, uh, um, plant, animal, and uh, mineral. And it's amazing, isn't it, that they're future-proof. Those remedies are future-proof, and and we're finding that out. I suppose not as homeopaths we, we've known, but people are now finding out because they're thinking, well, where did this information come? For example, on on such and such remedy, and or a met, for example, and you say, oh, it was. Uh, quite a long time ago actually it was you know about 200 years ago yes. and they're, they're surprised and shocked and they think what and then you have to explain well look you know the founder of homeopathy and his uh, successors as such or those that uh, you know succeeded him as far as looking into homeopathy and researching the remedies they were so meticulous well so i guess they thorough. weren't they weren't distracted by, you know, TikTok or the, the 10 o'clock news. I mean, they <laughs> TikTok, yes. I mean, Han Hanuman had how many children? I mean, certainly more than a handful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and he was still studying into the night and seeing people during the day. And likewise, Berninghausen was a lawyer, became a homeopath. They were very busy people. Um, I, I mean, Yes, thank thank goodness they did uh, all that work for us. But like you, I find it beautiful that something that was working two hundred years ago and was describing a mental state two hundred years ago is still relevant now. It, it almost feels like there's a universal law, or you know, we have to talk about universal energies that there is each remedy has its own imprint, which is beyond time. And you know, humans haven't changed that much in 200 years. We still suffer from terror and longing and grief, and you know, these are these are eternal feelings. And the remedies will always be relevant as long as we have those feelings. Mm. They're not going to expire. They're not going anywhere. You know. No, and if we think of people, will say, "How? Where does the mind? Where? Where did the mind come into homeopathy? Why was it so?" You know, my, I suspect it was because of Hanneman's work in mental hospitals and in the asylum that he could see that there was a connection between mental illness and physical illness that hadn't really been observed mm. before. But he could see, he was so obsessed with, you know, the detail of a small symptom as well as the big, you know, this person's got schizophrenia. He was probably looking at their skin and the smell of their breath and how many stools they passed each day as well. And he must have built up his picture from there.
and and for the listeners of of the of this podcast this work was not done overnight I, just one example was that the there is one remedy which is a miasmatic remedy in homeopathy and it took um dr hahnemann many many years to actually um put together the characteristics of that remedy so there was a detailed amount of observation over many years this was not something done over 3 months and that's why those remedies they're so detailed anyone can order a, a common materia medica as it's called and look through the remedy pictures or the the essence of the remedy or the characteristics and just some of the things are just so so detailed and that's the beauty of homeopathy because there's so much substance and so much the the remedies come to life there's so much substance in 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 that proving and because yeah. of that we have that picture to work on and there's thousands of remedies aren't there that are available to us and, and there's there means are. Of, yeah. and it's wonderful um but as a practitioner and i would say to the students i see it in my students eyes is that error of how many remedies there are now we have 3 4000 it's increasing mm. you know which one is the right one we have to remember that burninghausen was working with 130ish remedies and his success rate was amazing um so yes as 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 our material meta becomes more finessed and we're now you know looking at leopard or we're looking at oak or we're looking at you know sapphire whatever it is that that we're doing our homeopathic provings on or drug trials i suppose the equivalent is but they will all draw out a picture but i think there are we are made from stardust you know we are we are made from minerals and i always think that those core minerals of sulfur and phosphorus and magnesium and calcium would always be always have perhaps the greatest affinity with the human body um because that's what we're made of ourselves and they're amazingly powerful remedies as well sulfur oh, being one of me, the yes. key remedies in homeopathy sulfur and mercury are two of the most often referred to remedies and uh one just has to read up in any materia medica to find out the vast amount of information that's available just on these two substances you know yes i mean it was, it was some good provings followed by 200 years of clinical observation mm, absolutely this remedy works and i would say that in the treatment of my my um, patients with pots that sulfur is they need a sequence of remedies normally but the sulfur is the first remedy that they need in about 50 to 60% of the cases. I, I it, agree it with open, you. It opens the case. Absolutely. I 100% agree with you there. That's also an approach that I personally use as mm. well or have to use, should I say, for the benefit mm. of the patient. Now, exciting times because as uh, being part of homeopathy 247, of course practicing homeopathy, but then you are the editor or have been the editor of something called the materia medica viva part 13 is that right 13 yeah 13 yeah. which so is do I was... tell what that is <laughs> it is um it is in a series uh materia medica written by george vitupis himself um and i was honored to be asked to edit it for him because uh he's obviously he's greek he's amazing and his english is pretty good hmm. but to 
to um, make it polish it to um, another level, he asked me if I would edit it for him, and it was a it was an honor. I still can't quite believe I, I was I was allowed to do it somehow. Um, and we had a lot of conversations and a lot of toing and froing, and I learned so much about the remedies. Um, I'm just looking here because I always forget um, from um, from Caliarsenicum to Creosotum oh. is the the remedies that I covered. There's a lot of Ks. There's a lot of Calis, um, <laughs> um, and Calmia, and lots of remedies that I didn't know very well. So, so it was like me going back to college. I was like, oh, I didn't know about that. That food dark. Um, it was wonderful, and he was such a um, a gentleman to work with. Um, had strong views, but would always listen. And um, I think I think it turned out well. I think it's a good read. Um, and his knowledge um, is just beyond. You know, he talks about cases in the in the book where sum up perfectly what that what the picture profile of that remedy is on cases from all the old masters that he's dug out of volumes of homeopathy international from 1895 through to cases 20 years ago but again illustrate these you know some minimum cures which are just like wow didn't know that could do that so it's very very useful to have absolutely amazing and uh, took six months by the way that's not a bad time is it that's not bad. It's a lot of words. I think it's over 60,000 words. Wow. Are you working on any more? Not at the moment, no. Um, I'm too busy teaching. Well, I do do the occasional, um, George will send me a, a paper that he's, I did a paper recently, two papers he published, which he wanted to get the wording absolutely right for, um, uh, but I haven't done anything, no, not, not since the summer. But you are very busy with other things, and one of those things is you are teaching the homeopathy diploma at CNM, which is the College of Naturopathic Medicine in London. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, um, the founder and principal, Herman Kepler, has been on the show. How is that going in uh, teaching homeopathy and uh, the diploma itself at CNM? It must be quite, uh, it must be wonderful. It is. I mean, um, <laughs> I I didn't. I was asked to do it. Someone heard me um, being very passionate at a dinner party and went, "You should teach." And I know exactly the place. And they put me in touch with the college and said, "You need to see this woman." And there I was. I you know, I got a job. And I was so nervous the first day, but as soon as I walked in, I could see you know rows of eyes willing to learn in a room where I didn't have to apologize for homeopathy. Mm. Like these people are curious. They want to learn. They, they realize that this is a genuine medicine. Um, so the room is filled with passion and um, I can talk about all the cases that I've studied and um, it's a really good course. It's done, you know, uh, very meticulously. I mean, it's a bit of a, you know, wind tunnel because there's a lot to learn in in that time I'm, I'm, I'm you know i'm not the only one there there's a team of us so we we all take um, different lectures and then decide who will do what and we have a clinic um where you know the students in the third year will be allowed to take on cases themselves and see cases improving over months so that's a very useful technique because i think 
uh, one of the one of the struggles for all homeopathic students and new graduates is actually they just need to take more cases and they see they need to see more cases being taken. Hmm. So the more clinics there are for students in that third year, I think it's vital to for them to gain confidence because we are watching over. You know, the, the tutors are watching over to make sure that you don't give them a you know 50m of medorinum when all they needed was a also to the 30c um it's it's very it's very gratifying work and you know i feel it's a um a really good place to further classical homeopathy and the principles behind that and of course you're surrounded by all these you know naturopathy students and acupuncture students and nutritionists and the and the cross flow between those different subjects means that there's a lot of um extracurricular learning which is just absorbed that you understand that there's more than one way to skin a rabbit and that could be nutrition plus homeopathy or you know, acupuncture plus you know herbs I, I think that's great to have it all in the same place i think i, I love the fact that you're able to give the students uh, the clinical experience because places like india you have homeopathic hospitals or you have so many exactly. clinics and that's their experience in on the deep end but we don't necessarily have that here in the UK or in the West as much, but I know I think it's a real problem. I think you know if I was if I somebody you know if Elon Musk came in the door, I would say you know please can we have these ten homeopathic hospitals throughout the country so that all these new homeopaths can learn and mm. that the doctors in the same hospital can see what we can do. Um, that would be my dream um, because I think a lot of homeopaths give up because they. Like me, you know, when I started, they don't know how to market themselves and they're not getting enough cases to get more confident with. Um, I think that's a, a big issue that needs addressing. Any yeah. millionaires out there, yeah. we need your money in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> we need some hospitals. We we do. We we certainly do. And I think that is the the the, the best experience that you can have is going in on the deep end. I know <clears throat> a number of patients i i actually a student recently who was on the podcast again in post-production now and she was from malaysia nicole frankie and she mentioned that she did about six months in india in a, in a hospital right. and she yeah. said it was eye-opening because you're seeing like upwards of 50 100 people a day and you've got to think on your feet and it's the best learning because your mind can adapt and you know yes. you start to remember the remedies or the characteristics or the profile of a patient or sometimes it's just you just observation itself right once you see uh once you you know someone comes into your room and you actually don't know what remedy picture they are um until you've taken the case and when they leave you go click 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 through your thumbs and yes oh my god that's sulfur next time someone comes in you'll go oh he's got that sulfur look because yeah. you've seen it in practice and that is what all these homeopaths needs is just take more cases because the more cases you take, the better you'll be. I believe in India that homeopaths tend to see their patients once a week, whereas we see our patients maybe once a month here in the UK. Though, again, that turnover is very different with the number of people you'll see in a week. Absolutely. And and it's, um, <clears throat> but again, you know, uh, we can't perhaps emulate what's going on uh, there, but certainly clinical experience is very good and and also homeopathy initially is is it's very important to have someone with you that you can shadow and or who can mentor you because yes. that's also so so important you can't just do it on your own it doesn't work that way 
No, you can't. You need to you need to check and check with someone else again, check with it, somebody experienced. Check with someone who has a different understanding of the remedy picture than you do. Always. This is very useful. You know, I would like to work in a team. I'd like to work in the team of homeopaths in a clinic. Maybe maybe I should stop talking about it and try and set it up. I think that's, mm, that's, that's what idea. needs to happen. Well, you heard it first here on the show. <laughs> um we're gonna we're gonna do work on that. That's something interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Like I'm sure it will go very well as well in your capable hands. Oh, that's very kind. <laughs> now tell me what's on the horizon. Uh, well, I'm working on an ebook at the moment about pots, uh, pots and pots in long COVID, because I'm seeing more and more cases of long COVID referrals where pots is now a component of their illness. Um, so. It's the same remedies to treat both, but um, I think I'd like to put a little bit out there for other homeopaths so that they can deal with some of those cases because I'm inundated. Hmm. Um, and then just do more of the same because I get so much satisfaction from from doing this job that I I can't see myself changing any some at the moment. I've got I've got my teaching. I'm writing a book. Um, I carry on seeing my patients. I'm I'm very happy in that place. Good. You look very happy. Thank you. Because <laughs> I can see you. I mean, I know this is an audio podcast, but of course, we're, we're, I'm able to see Paula and vice versa. So, yeah, you're looking very, very happy indeed. Because <laughs> I went for a run this morning and got my dopamine hit. Good, good. Um, It's quite interesting, you know, you mentioned uh, about uh, POTS and the fact that, you know, long COVID has also had an effect. So, what uh, how what's the diagnosis how is that made medically if 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 there is one how is that how do they get Isn't, to that well how what, pots or long covid uh, pots pots um it's something called a tilt table test so uh they put you on a table they strap you to a table like frankenstein um mm. um and then they turn that table 180 degrees so you're standing upright on the table um and they see how high your heart rate goes. And somebody, yours might go to 80, 95. Somebody's with POTS will go to 120, 130, sometimes even higher. And they will start to sweat and they will have palpitations and they feel dizzy. Um, that is the, the medical proof mm. that you have it. But, um, you know, the poor man's tilt test is to, to go from, from sitting to standing and see how high your, your heart rate goes. And there's a whole host of other symptoms that come with it. Um, dizziness and something called blood pooling, where blood stays in your feet rather than goes to your brain, which is why you feel faint. Um, they get, that's, that's the only way they diagnose it. And all they can do after that is give you beta blockers and antidepressants and um, antihistamines. It's, there's very little they can do. And homeopathy is just amazing here, isn't it? I can only imagine. I have got people. I mean, I've got two people out of wheelchairs with this. They had such bad pots, they couldn't actually stand up without mm. falling over or fainting. And they are now no longer in wheelchairs. They're able to stand. They're able to walk. They're able to go to work. They're able to, you know, go to the park with their kids. So, yes, when the remedy is right, 
Yeah, I don't always get there the first go because, as I said, their their presentation, because the level of health is quite low, sometimes it's not the first remedy I choose. It might be the second, sometimes even the third, but we generally do get there. And then, as you know, with your own work, when you find the right remedy at the right potency, miracles happen. It's absolutely. I mean, it's a phenomenal miracle, isn't it? It really yeah. is something to be to be witnessed. Um they say the proof is in the pudding, and, and I refer to that as well, because unless you've tried homeopathy, you you can't do it justice just by reading some literature. You have to have seen a homeopath for whatever condition it is and seen the results, because it's just, I mean, literally, it's life-changing. You know? Yes, I mean, there, and, and I think the place to look, if, is one, if one is genuinely curious and also want to be prepared for difficult dinner parties where people start to tell you that you're a charlatan, is to look at the work of the Indian homeopaths, um, uh, Seema Mahesh, Dr. Seema Mahesh in particular, and her husband, Mahesh Mahesh, who are working with George Vatuklas through ICH to publish papers where not only have they recorded the case of the homeopathy, but have the blood test to show it have the lung scans to show it you know they you can see the progress they document the progress these are clinically valid papers which are now being respected and viewed by doctors and going oh okay so that's uh, we need more of that i think mm. another um, another leap forward yeah well just to 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 give doctors confidence that this is there is something to it they need the facts and what these you know what the mahesh doctors are doing are providing those facts alongside the homeopathic philosophy that got the improvements going. Brilliant. Uh, Paula, we are nearly at the end of the podcast. It's It's okay. been so fascinating speaking to you. Oh, it's been fun. It's, it's been really, <laughs> I've loved it. Uh, Paula, we have absolute delight, a very inspiring conversation indeed, and thank you so very much. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been fun. I do hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of the Homeopathy Health Show. Please do support the show by clicking follow on my socials. Remember, the more exposure the podcast receives, the better for homeopathy around the world. You can find me on Instagram by searching for at like underscore treats like and on both Facebook and TikTok by searching for at like treats like. So let's promote the voice of homeopathy on radio and podcast around the world together. Don't forget to visit me online at www.liketreatslike.co.uk and click on the radio and podcast tab. Here you'll be able to see all the guests that have joined me on the show so far. And of course, you can stream on demand the latest episode to your mobile, tablet or PC. Until next time, stay safe and take care.